Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. Well, I managed to survive the holidays. Well, Christmas. I guess there's still New Year's coming up. I think I've mentioned before that Christmas doesn't really hold a lot of value as far as like stress goes. I've never really had any experiences that make Christmas particularly difficult to get through. When I was younger, we had big big Christmases. We had a, a large family gathering that kind of was dying off before I went away to prison. And then when I got back, we had a couple, you know, attempts at it, but it just wasn't the same. And it wasn't something that we continued as much as I enjoyed those events. They were definitely something I enjoyed when I was younger, more than I did when I was older. As I got older, I kind of saw some of the hypocrisy in my family, particularly this was my mom's side. My, my dad's side didn't do much of anything holiday related. Uh, we kind of lost touch over the years just based on some kind of just natural order of things. You know, my aunt on my dad's side, my, my dad's sister, is really the only family that I talk to at all on that side. And on my mom's side, you know, what's left is my grandparents who go to Arizona and a couple uncles. That's really it. I mean, I have other family, but we weren't super close. It's not like any of them have ever tried to track me down to contact me in a decade. So there's no real pain there either. It's just something that happened, but my connection to family hasn't really always been that strong. I think I care for my grandparents. I, I cared for my mother, even though there was a lot of toxicity there. I don't really care for my dad, like one way or another. It, he's just something that occurred in my life, I guess, that doesn't really hold a lot of value anymore. So not doing something for the holidays isn't, it wasn't really harmful, I usually was in a relationship. I've said this before. I was usually in a relationship, so I I ended up just doing whatever they did. This year, I chose to spend some time with some friends. Uh, last year, I went over to a good friend of mine's, and I did the same this year. And, you know, I kind of feel like I'm perfectly okay with that just being what I do for Christmas. They're basically family. They might as well be. I'm loved there. Uh, I love them in return. And I feel welcome there, more so than I probably have in in other family settings. So it was really nice to uh, to be able to do that. Uh, I didn't feel like drinking at all. I haven't felt like drinking in a long time. Uh, but I did end up kind of in a conversation about the word recovered. And I've covered it a little bit, uh, but it really, it really was interesting to have that conversation now, months after kind of first thinking about my relationship with alcohol, my relationship with AA, my relationship with recovery how that is starting to look different than it did when I first came into the programs and and the, the readings and the books and all that. And, you know, the big book talks about recovered. They use the, the word recovered. I strongly believe that they felt that people would recover from this. And I have, I have just come to terms that I don't care. I don't care about alcohol. If, if I were given an opportunity to take a, a pill and, and not drink anymore, I mean, take a pill and not have adverse effects from drinking. I don't think I would care about it. I don't think I would want to. And I know people are going to assume, well, it's easy to say that, but I don't want to smoke weed like at all. I don't really have an interest or a desire for that. The reason I don't is because I just don't like the way that it makes me feel. Yeah, it probably would numb a lot of the, the issues I have and face regularly, uh, but 
I've not really been interested in seeking that out. Even when I was drinking, I smoked rarely. And when I did, I didn't really like it. Like it was never a replacement for alcohol. It was not something I did often. And I feel the same way about a lot of other chemicals that might alter my my thinking or my drinking, my thinking or my my feelings. Seeing people get drunk, I just, I don't have a connection to that feeling anymore. I really just don't at all. It's not something I miss. It's not even really something I romanticize anymore. It's not something I wish I could find a way around to go back to. Uh, it's just something I don't do. And my relationship with alcohol has changed to the point to where my relationship with recovery is starting to change and like what that actually looks for me. And what I told them, this person I was having the conversation with, it was a Facebook conversation, so it wasn't in person, but it was still back and forth. What I told them was, I'm, I am recovered from alcohol. It doesn't hold sway over me. My life isn't based on my abstinence. I just don't drink. But I am recovering from all the traumas that led to me abusing alcohol, led to me making poor decisions, led to me having poor self-esteem, and and led to me lashing out and being harmful to people around me. And I feel like I'm always going to be recovering from that. That's where I'm at. So when I say I'm in recovery, that's what I'm meaning. And I think that's why my relationship with these programs are, are changing is I no longer need to target or feel I do not need to continue to target my abstinence. I feel pretty strong in my abstinence. I need to continue to target the, the underlying traumas. And there's only so much that the 12 steps are going to do there. Realistically, there's not much at all. I've done the bigger work of the fourth step a few times. I have I continue to do the, the back end of the steps in a way you know, daily, but that doesn't really get to the, the core, you know, the, the, the trauma. So that's where I'm at now is what, what will, how can I, what's going to be the next step there? I, I'm starting a new job. It's going to change my insurance. It's going to take a couple months for my insurance to kick in, but it's going to be a much better insurance than I have now. Way, way, way better. Probably the best I've ever had in my life. It's extremely affordable and the coverage is incredible. Uh, included in that is mental health coverage. So I'm going to be able to to consider, you know, maybe something like CBT or, or get back into having a regular therapist, uh, at the very least considering medications for my ADHD, if that's, if that's the case, if that's what I, you know, still feel like I have, if that's what I need to treat. And I think that's what's next. You know, I can very easily get back to thinking that because I addressed some of those traumas once, they're now handled and taken care of, and I don't, I don't need to to really dig deep and uncover how those traumas affect my life currently. But that's a terrible, terrible way of thinking for me. Uh, I know what I need to do differently this time and moving forward is to consider those traumas just always there. Uh, uh, it, whether that's true or not, just I need to always be addressing that. So I know some people live in this kind of like, they need to work on their abstinence every day, uh, daily maintenance every day. My, mine is on the traumas underneath. Some days that might m- mean it's a little easier. Some days, some days a little harder, but you know, there's still, there's still a lot there. Not as, it's not as pungent, I guess, if that's the right word. I'm not living in direct response to those traumas anymore. That's good. Yeah, I make decisions that are a little bit more forethinking or a little bit more um, logical and less emotional. You know, I'm I'm making uh, progress in not living in ego or reacting to my lack of self-esteem. You know, those things aren't really things I have to worry about as much. But I also know that 
that is the thing that I need to continue a daily maintenance on or I will start backsliding and the backslide will be fast and it will be devastating. So I have to be vigilant on that front. So what does that, you know, what does that actually ultimately mean for this? Like I said before, and it's kind of repeating something I've already said is I'm, I'm going to be, I'm still going to be reading this book. I'm going to make it through the end of this book. And then I'm going to be just focusing strictly on how others have chosen to recover and how people are recovering from traumas. I think it's going to end up kind of migrating towards that since I think that's the most important aspect of this. Everything can fucking be brought down and reduced down to some underlying trauma it's connected to. It really can. You know, if you have a shitty relationship with women, that's that's going to be fucking trauma-based. If you have a hard time making friends, it's going to be trauma-based. Maybe you're too quiet and timid. Maybe you're too loud and obnoxious. Maybe you're... Whatever it is, it's all fundamentally based in something. And while, again, while AA does a really good job of making us aware of some of that stuff, it's, you know, 1939 fucking speak uh, or 1950-something speak of, uh, of untrained, un seasoned non-professionals who got enough of this right that they found a program that can help people abstain but didn't get enough of this right that can help people work through these traumas bill wilson's admitted it other members have admitted it and i think it's i think it's a good idea that we all just sort of admit that that's the case so at times there might be professionals on here who do drink and are not sober but have a way of looking at traumas that are just unique and interesting and can be used in recovery uh, in ways that I don't think would be necessarily explored properly through folks who just have an anecdotal experience. Not saying that there's no value in that. Story is a huge thing. I did activism long enough to know how story works in our world and our society. And I think a lot of the times what really we connect with is story. That's why the book um, did such a good job there we, with connecting people with feeling like they weren't alone is through story. But I also know that there's people that have studied this stuff you know, abstinence, controlled drinking, mat recovery, uh, Cali sober recovery, what, whatever other uh, psychological things could come along with that. So I think that's the direction this is going to start going. If that sounds like, you know, something that people might be interested in, let, let me know. If not, if you want me to continue to find literature and read through that and kind of, you know, give my piece, let me know. I might be able to do a hybrid there's some articles that are out there that I might be able to continue to look into and maybe just kind of share some stories of my past and, and talk with other people, shorter, shorter interviews if I can't get longer ones. I'm trying to be as adaptable as possible while also being conscientious of the fact that uh, I'll have to schedule a lot of this stuff in advance, which I struggle with, and I'll have to um, find the time for it, which I also struggle with. So that all being said... I hope everybody has continued to enjoy this. I, it seems seems that I may have lost a few listeners, and that's unfortunate, but I still have like a core group that is still listening, and I, I appreciate and respect all of you for doing so. Uh, if you can think of any improvements, please, please reach out. The email is oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. The Facebook page is... Uh, an atheist reads the big book of AA. I am not sure what's going on with the group. Like I cannot search and find it. I can find it in some really weird back root way. And there are some people that have found it. Uh, Facebook groups is just very strange. So it's a Facebook page, but you can, you can message me directly through those. I think that's really the only ones I've, I'm going to consistently be active with. Um, I tried to be active again with Instagram and I'm just struggling with that. Maybe these are things that'll, that'll change once I really actually start treating my the potential for ADHD. I keep saying it that way. I have ADHD. I'm, I'm not going to 
like I'll be surprised if the doctor comes back is like, ah, you said yes to every single thing that could mean you have ADHD, but I don't think you have it. I anything's possible, but I hope everybody else out there that's listening, I hope you all had a, had a great Christmas time as well. I hope you have something planned for the New Year's. I'm gonna be hanging out with friends, be at a party, um, pretty low key party, just more of a gathering get together, and I uh, might. Uh, go see a friend for his birthday. If you don't have plans and you are concerned, if you don't know already, all of the big, bigger AA meeting centers, any place that that has like a regular set of meeting schedule that goes on there is going to have marathon meetings. In conjunction with that, we'll usually have some sort of like activity situation going on. Like the one that's near me, they do they do uh, 24 hours of meetings, but then in the, the room next to it, they have game night and like a little get together. Like I think last year, the last year I was there, they set up like um, a Super Nintendo and they had like cookie decorating and stuff like that. So don't feel like you have to be alone. You know, the fellowship is still of major value, even if you're also on the fence with AA as I am. Uh, there's no reason to be alone. You know, they might put you to work. You might get some some value that way. Or, you know, if you just need to just not not sit at home alone, you can sit at a meeting. And even if you sit alone, you're, you're not alone. You know what I mean? So don't don't feel like that there aren't options or there's nowhere for you to go. There There's definitely going to be some kind of a meeting. There could be online uh, marathon meetings going on as well. Um, so, you know, keep your eyes open for that. Make sure you're taking that extra step if you feel like you're on on the um, the edge. You know, if you're new in sobriety, definitely reach out to some folks. Let them know that you're you're brand new and that you're trying not to, you know, if you're having troubles with the, the upcoming holiday, that you're not trying to be alone. And even if they don't have like an event or a meeting or something like that that you can go to at the drop of a hat, you know, maybe they don't have marathon meetings. I'm sure you'll find someone that will be like, okay, man, let's, you know, we'll figure something out. So be be open, be conscious of how you feel. If you're not feeling like you're going to stay sober, then get out there and figure out who, who you can be with it that might help with that. You know, don't uh, don't isolate. All right, going right into the Stoic reading. December 26th. Life is long if you know how to use it. It's not at all that we have too short a time to live, but that we squander a great deal of it. Life is long enough, and it's given in sufficient measure to do many great things if we spend it well. But when it's poured down the drain of luxury and neglect, when it's employed to no good end, we're finally driven to see that it has passed by before we even recognized it passing. And so it is. We don't receive a short life. We make it so. Seneca on the Brevity of Life 1.3-4a No one knows how long they have to live, but sadly, we can be sure of one thing. We'll waste far too much of life. Waste it sitting around. Waste it chasing the wrong things. Waste it by refusing to take the time to ask ourselves what's actually important to us. Far too often, we're like the overconfident academics that Petrarch criticized in his classic essay on ignorance. The types who fritter away their powers incessantly in caring for things outside of them and seek themselves there. Yet they have no idea this is what they're doing. So today, if you find yourself rushed or uttering the words, I just don't have enough time, stop and take a second. Is this actually true? Or have you just committed to a lot of unnecessary things? Are you actually being efficient or have you assumed a great deal of waste into your life? The average American spends something like 40 hours a year in traffic. That's months over the course of a life. And for traffic, you can substitute so many activities, from fighting with others to watching television to daydreaming. Your life is plenty long. Just use it properly. This me this this really um kind of hits me right now. You know, my time I've talked before probably more than once 
multiple times about my um my lack of time management i'm really i really really struggle with that aspect of my life and i get stuck in like kind of a almost a coma of of either you know messing around on my phone or i'll have activities that i want to do or should be getting done and i'll put them off and I'll put them further away from like the center of my brain. I'll make excuses as to why I could do them the next day. And it, it affects me quite a bit at work. It affects me even in relation to the podcast. There's been a couple times where I finished the podcast episode right up till the end of the, the night on Monday to be released the next day because I kept putting it off or wasn't really paying attention to how long things actually take or whatever other things might occur. Something else it kind of points out that maybe I don't fully agree with is this idea of pouring it down the drain of luxury and neglect. Now, it's really easy for me to also get stuck in the idea that anything that I do for myself is a waste of time. Anything that I do for fun, anything that might be considered self-care, maybe I just am, maybe it's been a long week or maybe I'm just feeling tired and I lay down like for a half an hour on a weekend where I don't have anything really planned. It's easy for my brain to start thinking, well, this is, you're wasting this time. It's a, it's easy for me to look at um, playing video games with some friends as wasting time. And I'll stop doing that and start just working my ass to the bone. And that's a dangerous thing too uh, for, for me and people like me. You know, there's always a, it seems like it's, it's one or the other. Either I get nothing done of value and I waste my whole day or I do so much that I don't feel like confident that I can use any time for myself. I think lately I have migrated more towards doing less and my stress levels seem to be going down. And I think in regard to this reading, some of the things that I choose to do with my day would be considered neglect and luxury. It would be considered a waste for sure. But in the grand scheme of things, that's what's seeming to make me happy in some cases. I just need to find that balance. You know, I have a, a cosplay event that I want to go to with some friends. I need to work on this this costume that I'm making. And when I could be working on the costume, I'm just not. I'm, I'm not motivated to do it. And I don't know what the reason is. Some of it is because I just don't like how, you know, one of the pieces turned out. And I'm going to have to redo it. I don't like doing that. Um, I'm also feeling defeated about the rest of the pieces since the one didn't turn out. But really, it's just coming down to... I don't want to feel burdened by deadlines and I don't want to be feel I like not doing anything on my weekends. It's fucking honest truth. The problem is, is I've gotten to where I just really don't do anything if I don't have to. I've gone out and I've gone socializing and stuff and, I, and I'll do my laundry. And like today I had to cook a prime rib because I, I was going to go bad. Otherwise, you know, I got got it for free from work. But it was like pulling teeth even just doing that. And so I need to really find that balance. Like if I were better suited for managing my time there is a lot more that i probably would have accomplished in my life for sure and while i don't live in that regret of like oh i didn't do as much as i wanted to at all all the time there are times where it hits me pretty hard that i've i've not utilized my time to the best of my ability i've wasted too much of it and i don't want to continue to do that i think one of the reasons why I've continued to maintain this podcast is that reason. I will look at something as if I'm wasting my time with it and just stop doing it. YouTube videos, a different podcast I started, different hobbies, all these things I've talked about more than once. That always almost all all comes down to this idea that if it doesn't have interest, intrinsic value, I'm not pronouncing that right, then there's no reason for me to do it. If I can't market it, if I can't make money with it, if I can't give the product out to people, if I can't 
if the the thing I am doing it doesn't go out into the world, and it's only for me, then I then it's a waste. Like these are all things I really struggle with. So I'm working on that. That's and that was a good reading for me right now to to really kind of readjust and hopefully double down. You know, I'm getting a little better at not not getting sucked into my phone. I'm getting a little better at not beating myself up if I don't use my time wisely, if I don't get all my tasks done. I'm getting better at actually giving myself tasks for the day that are important things, you know, things that I know I need to do that I would usually put off, like fixing my car. You know, in the past, I would just wait until the car broke down completely and then sell it and then get a different one or, or whatever other thing, you know, that was now an event as opposed to just being a thing that I did for a half an hour. So I'm getting better, or at least I'm making some headway uh, in and measuring and balancing what could be considered a waste of time. All right, this week we're gonna be going over step five and tradition five. Uh, step five is gonna be a little rough, or at least it seems like it might be, but it's really, it's not that bad. Step five is admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, obviously I omit the God part from this. It very easily I just admit to myself and to another person the exact nature of the things I wrote down in step four. And when I did this, it was extremely cathartic. The first time I did it, even though I didn't end up staying in the program, it was extremely cathartic. Uh, every time I've done it, there's been a lot of value in doing this. One, uh, entrusting someone else with the information that I wrote down. Uh, and two, just trusting myself to follow through with the process. While the process might change for me over the years, it might not always look the same. This was what I signed up for. This is what I was determined to see through. Now, before, uh, before it was more readily available to find somebody that was unbiased as it is now to share some of this information with, like people would go and they would, they would share this with a priest. You, you could probably still do that now. It, it just ask a priest to sit down with you and you could share this with them if that was something you were interested in. As an atheist, that seemed bizarre to me. I mean, not that I have anything against that kind of process, right? Confession of some sort. Um, but I didn't see the value in, in going to a priest. If I did that, it's subconsciously, it probably would have come with this idea of shock. Like I would be just trying to like shock them in some way. And that's, there's no value in that. Now, what I have learned over the years is uh, a lot of sponsors, not a lot, but more sponsors than I expected. They'll actually have their sponsees share it with someone else. And the purpose, there's like a dual purpose. Usually the first purpose being um, to find someone else that you trust with this information so that you're not only entrusting everything to just your sponsor. But the other part is some sponsors don't want to have, don't want to be privy to this information and have that potentially alter their relationship with the, the sponsee. I don't agree with that myself. I think it's important that this be a shared bond like that. This is an important part of the program that I still do like the sponsor sponsor relationship, the kind of mentor mentee, just having someone that you trust, uh, that one more thing in front of that first drink and having someone you trust is, is a part of that. And this step to me is honestly more about that, than it is about like absolving yourself of all this bullshit that you might've done. And that's not really what this is even for. It's really, you know, you're getting it off your chest, right? But you're not, this, this is not an action step outside of that. This isn't a freeing of all the things in your past. Like I said, it doesn't, you know, AA doesn't cover all the traumas and just remove them from your life. And then now you're perfectly healed. That's not what this is really about. What it's really about is being able to give voice to things that you yourself may just chew on and slowly poison yourself with. That's what it was for me. A hundred percent. There's things I just would I would just chew it up and I would swallow it and I would bury it and I would let it slowly kill me. And once I aired it, 
you know, I'm pretty open as a person. Obviously, I started a podcast where I share pretty much every single piece of my my life. Clearly, I don't have a lot of boundaries when it comes to that. But there was always a bit of, and I've shared this before, there's always a bit of social currency involved when I shared my story. And I, you know, to some degree, there probably always is, but I used it as almost a form of manipulation. I would share parts of my story to get people's guard down so that they trusted me. And then that way, not having those boundaries with people sharing all the things and not, and, and oversharing in some cases would mean that now, now I would feel less like they were going to leave. Right. So it was more of just a, um, if you know all this stuff about me, then maybe you'll feel a certain way about me and then you'll want to stick around. And, you know, it had, that had its value there, there was, there was purpose to that. But now, you know, my story, my story is a little less open to the public, uh, not through podcasts. Obviously I don't care if people listen to this podcast and learn these things about me, but if I were meeting somebody new, I'm probably not going to open up with, Hey, I tried to kill myself three years ago. I've had a really fucked up life. My mom did this. My dad did that. Uh, I did these terrible things to people before I met you. And, uh, I also went to prison. That's probably not how that's going to go. Now I will always share the fact that I've been to prison with certain people. That's never going to change, especially if it's somebody that I'm dating or I'm going to be romantically involved with. They they will definitely know usually before I, I go to their house. But this unloading that I used to do doesn't have to happen right away. I found that the bond that's created is temporary and false anyways. The real bonds, the ones that, that really have value are the ones that grow slowly over time. By the time you get to step five and you're working with your sponsor, hopefully that bond has slowly grown into something. And this is the catalyst that'll get it to the next level. This to me, this step, more than it is just the unburdening of this information, is an appropriate form of that that also builds a bond with someone else you can call if you're in a dire situation you're at the fucking liquor store you're about to throw the cap away and drink a bottle of whatever it's easier to call someone if you've if you've gone through something like this with them and yeah i mean yeah that that makes it a, a form of emotional currency you know but in this event you both are signing up for that contract you know what this is designed to do and you know the purpose behind it so for me, you know, obviously God, I don't care about that part, uh, but admitting it to myself, because I tell my story to people all the time, but I don't always listen to myself say it uh, and saying it out loud is so, so valuable. All of AA's 12 steps ask us to go contrary to our natural desires. They all deflate our egos. When it comes to ego deflation, few steps are harder to take than five, but scarcely any step is more necessary to long-time sobriety and peace of mind than this one. Yeah, ego death is always important when you're trying to like restructure and rebuild. I, I don't know that that's, to me, that just isn't, I think four is more the ego death. Um, five is more uh, the bond building, but also, you know, uh, it, it's different for everybody. So maybe some people will feel that the ego dies with this, but uh, in either, either way, this is a, a good start here. AA experience has taught us we cannot live alone with our uh, pressing problems and the character defects which cause or aggravate them. If we have swept the searchlight of step four back and forth over our careers, and it has revealed in stark relief those experiences we'd rather not remember, if we have come to know how wrong thinking and action have hurt us and others, then the need to quit living by ourselves with those tormenting ghosts of yesterday gets more urgent than ever. We have to talk to somebody about them. So intense, though, is our fear and reluctance to do this that many AAs at first try to bypass step five. We search for an easier way, which usually consists of the general fearly, uh, fairly painless admission that when drinking, we were sometimes bad actors. Then, for good measure, we add dramatic descriptions of that part of our drinking behavior, which our friends probably know about anyhow. But the things which really bother and burn us 
we say nothing. Certain distressing or humiliating memories we tell ourselves ought not be shared with anyone. These will remain our secret. Not a soul must ever know. We hope they'll go to the grave with us. Yeah, that was a, that was a lot of my experience. There were things I didn't share. You know, I I take ownership of the the things I did, like my me going to prison. I take ownership of that. Uh, you know, I tell that story as honestly as I can. Me, you know, the the harm I did in my drinking, those kinds of things. When I do share them, I I take ownership. But there were things where I would I kept it to myself. You know, different things that made me look worse than even I was when I talked about you know having tried to kill somebody. Inner inner secrets. And a lot of that stuff was just killing me, just eating me alive. Yet if AA's experience means anything at all, this is, this is not only unwise, but is actually a perilous resolve. Few muddled attitudes have caused us more trouble than holding back on step five. Some people are unable to stay sober at all. Others will relapse periodically until they really clean house. Even AA old-timers, sober for years, often pay dearly for skipping this step. They will tell you how they tried to carry the load alone, how much they suffered of irrationality, anxiety, remorse, and depression, and how, unconsciously seeking relief, they would sometimes arouse even their best friends of the very character defects they themselves were trying to conceal. They always discovered that relief never came by confessing the sins of other people. Every day, everybody had to confess his own. And this is important too. That's why if you are doing step four properly, when you get to step five, the focus is on yourself. It's not going to do you any good to be like, well, they did this, and so therefore I did this. Or they did this, and that's why I feel this way. Or that's why I reacted this way. You got to keep people out of it. We're just focused on ourselves when we're doing this. We're the most important thing of this this whole process. And I know that sounds selfish, and a lot of people are going to feel like it's selfish, but, you know, so fucking what? We were selfish in our drinking, we'll be selfish in our recovery. The difference is, when we were selfish in our drinking, when I was selfish in my drinking, I caused a lot of people a lot of harm. And when I'm selfish in my recovery, I cause a lot of people, hopefully, joy and peace. <laughs> That's the focus, right? The practice of admitting one's defects to another person is, of course, very ancient. It has been uh, validated in every century, and it characterizes the lives of all spiritually centered and truly religious people. But today, religion is by no means the sole advocate of this saving principle. Psych psychiatrists and psychologists point out the deep need every human being has for practical insight and knowledge of his own personality flaws and for a discussion of them with an understanding and trustworthy person. So far as alcoholics are concerned, AA would go even further. Most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects to another human being, we could not stay sober. It seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we are willing to try this. <sighs> yeah, I don't know how, obviously, there's not any citation here to show that this is like, you know, millennia practiced traditions amongst spiritually and religious people. I, maybe, maybe, probably a form of this, I am sure has always existed some safe way for you to absolve yourself of certain things, but that's not what we're talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. Maybe that's the direction Bill was going as a very Catholic, like I did bad, so I want to get into heaven. So in order to do that, I should tell people about that. If I tell people about that, then they'll give me some form of a punishment and then I'll be fixed. That's not quite what this is. To me, it's not what this is at all. What are we likely to receive from step five? For one thing, we shall get rid of that terrible sense of isolation we've always had. Almost without exception, alcoholics are tortured by loneliness. 
Even before our drinking got bad and people began to cut us off, nearly all of us suffered the feeling that we didn't quite belong. Either we were shy and dared not draw near others, or we were apt to be noisy, good fellows, craving attention and companionship, but never getting it. At least to our way of thinking, there was always that mysterious barrier we could neither surmount nor understand. It was as if we were actors on a stage, suddenly realizing that we did not know a single line of our parts. That's one reason we loved alcohol too well. It did let us act extemporaneously. But even Bacchus boomeranged on us. We were finally struck down and left to terrified loneliness. I don't know what the hell that means. When we reached AA and for the first time of our lives stood among people who seemed to understand, this sense of belonging was tremendously exciting. We thought the isolation problem had been solved, but we soon discovered that while we weren't alone anymore in social sense, we still suffered many of the old pangs of anxious apartness until we had talked with complete candor of our conflicts and had listened to someone else do the same thing, we still didn't belong. Step five was the answer. It was the beginning of true kinship with man and God. That was not my experience with step five. I did not suddenly become like the life of the party or learn how to socialize after I did step five. It helped me form a bond with another male, which was difficult, but even then the bond was still semi-superficial. It, it doesn't go the next step when it comes to that. And after that, I did not suddenly feel like I belonged in the AA meetings. I still don't, to be quite honest. I have found a place that I belong with a group of friends and people that care for me. And I feel that I'm loved. And I feel these things that I've never really felt or allowed myself to feel before. That did not really come from working these steps. That came from a counselor. And that came from me actually actively working on my friendships and relationships with people. Not to say that that can't be found by doing these steps or by working in this program. But I'm saying that if after doing this, after reading this, and after doing the fifth step, you still don't feel quite a part of something, that's not a failure of the program. It just means there's other work that has to be done. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not doing something wrong if you feel that way. There's just other things underneath all this that still need to be worked on. That's all it means. This vital step was also the means by which we began to get the feeling that we could be forgiven no matter what we had thought or done. Often it was while working on this step with our sponsors or spiritual advisors that we first felt truly able to forgive others, no matter how deeply we felt they had wronged us. Our moral inventory had persuaded us that all-round forgiveness was desi desirable, but it was only when we resolutely tackled step five that we inwardly knew we'd be able to receive forgiveness and give it too. So the biggest part of this that isn't related to the bond that I was talking about was the self part of this step, of this step, looking at all this stuff, telling yourself, you know, these things happen, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not the permanence that it, it won't always mean that this is who I am. I am not a thing because I did things. I'm a thing if I continue to do things. You you are what you do, right? The the kind of Greek idea of you are what you do, not work-wise, which I mean, some people are that, which is kind of sad to me, but when it comes to your actions in society and how you are as a person. This is this is the moment for me where I was able to actually set aside my past and realize that who I am today has, while I may have become the person I am today because of my past, what I do moving forward is who I am. Another great dividend we may expect from confiding our defects to another human being is humility, a word often misunderstood. To those who have made progress in AA, it amounts to a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could be. Therefore, our first practical move toward humility must consist of reorganizing our deficiencies. No defect can be corrected unless we clearly see what it is, but we shall have to do more than see. The objective look at ourselves we achieved in step four was, after all, only a look. 
All of us saw, for example, that we lacked honesty and tolerance, that we were beset by, at times by attacks of self-pity or delusions of personal grandeur. But while this was a humiliating experience, it didn't necessarily mean that we had yet acquired such actual humility. Though now recognized, our defects were still there. Something had to be done about them, and we soon found that we could not wish or will them away by ourselves. Okay, firstly, do not look at step four as a humiliating experience. I this my biggest one of my biggest peeves about this program is this idea that you must be shamed somehow or humiliated somehow, either internally, interpersonally, or amongst others in a way that's just fucking unhealthy, to be honest. And I think it makes the process much more unnecessarily difficult. Looking objectively at the things in your past should not come with humiliation. And if it does, it's going to it's gonna be a barrier and it's going to make it harder to not drink. And it's not necessary. Self-flagellation isn't necessary. Beating yourself is not necessary. It's unnecessary. It's the opposite of what you should be doing in this in this portion of things or at all. But having this call that back as while this was a humiliating experience, it really shouldn't be. Please try your best not to focus on the, the shame of, the, of any of this. It doesn't do any good. It solves nothing. It doesn't fix any part of who you are as a person. It doesn't remove any of these traumas or even work on any of these traumas. It doesn't help anybody. None of the people that you may have caused harm are going to give a shit if you're fucking humiliated. And if they do, well, you know, fuck them. So try for humility in this step, in step five, step four, try to avoid humiliation. More realism and therefore more honesty about ourselves are the great gains we make under the influence of step five. As we took inventory, we began to suspect how much trouble self-delusion had been causing us. This had brought a disturbing reflection. If all our lives we had more or less fooled ourselves, how could we now be so sure that we weren't self-deceived? How could we be certain that we had made a, tr a true catalog of our defects and had really admitted them even to ourselves? Because we were still bothered by fear, self-pity, and hurt feelings, it was probable we couldn't appraise ourselves fairly at all. Too much guilt and remorse might cause us to dramatize or exaggerate our shortcomings. Our anger and hurt pride might be the smokescreen under which we were hiding some of our defects, while we blamed others for them. Possibly, too, we were still handicapped by many liabilities, great and small, we knew we never knew we had. That's an important part, too. Well, I, I don't really buy into the whole defects of character uh, wording or verbiage of this because I don't really think that's what it is. It's a defense mechanism, some of which we might want to keep around moving forward. Uh, it is this process will will bring about stuff that you hadn't really thought about. If you're doing it right, not saying maybe I worded that wrong. I'm not saying that if you didn't discover something new that you're doing it wrong, but this process does open up the possibility that you'll see things that maybe you weren't aware of. That's what I meant to say. Hence, it was most evident that a solitary self-appraisal and the admission of our defects based upon that alone wouldn't be nearly enough. We'd have to have outside help if we were surely to know and admit the truth about ourselves, the help of God and another human being. Only by discussing ourselves, holding back nothing, only by being willing to take advi advice and act accept direction could we set foot on the road to straight thinking, sad, solid honesty, and genuine humility. I think it goes without saying that obviously God's not a part of this for me. And I will say also that, you know, if you take this to your sponsor and give this information to him and he ends up coming back with like, like a bunch of advice that doesn't work for you, you don't have to listen to it. You don't have to listen to what your sponsor says. If they're disrespectful in return or they start judging you, then fire your sponsor and find a different one. That, I mean, hopefully by by the time you get to this part, you'll know if that's going to be the case. But too many of these old timers would shit on you for stuff that you did. 
you know, back of the day. And that's garbage. That's not a, that's not a healthy part of this process. Uh, that's old archaic thinking again, that, that should be based in some sort of like, um, you know, uh, shame or regret or whatever else. That's not a part of this. Other people flagellate and use not a part of this. Yet many of us still hung back. We said, why can't God, as we understand him, tell us where we are astray? If the creator gave us our lives in the first place, then he must know in every detail where we have since gone wrong. Why don't we make our admissions to him directly? Why do we need to bring anyone else into this? Well, you know, that's the kind of question that all us atheists might have. You know, if, if God if God's omnipotent, why doesn't he cure cancer? And when you do get cancer, why is it just like God works in mysterious ways and and you, you know, you surviving cancer is a part of his test for you and you have free will and, and et cetera, et cetera. What whatever. This question doesn't apply to me. None of these questions do. There is no God, so there is no person who's going to, you know, remove these from me. At this stage, the difficulties of trying to deal rightly with God by ourselves are twofold. Though we may at first be startled to realize that God knows all about us, we are apt to get used to that quite quickly. Somehow, being alone with God doesn't seem as embarrassing as facing up to another person. Until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we have so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical. When we are honest with another person, it confirms that we have been honest with ourselves and with God. That part is true for me. Not the God, obviously, but the part where if you're, yeah, it's great that you're willing to sit down and you're, you're willing to share this with yourself and open up to yourself because a lot of times that's, that's the hardest one. But the fact that you're willing to also put your money where your mouth is and share this with someone else, that to me kind of seals the deal, so to speak. The second difficulty is this. What comes to us alone may be garbled by our own rationalization and wishful thinking. The benefit of talking to another person is that we can get his direct comment and counsel on our situation, and there could be no doubt in our minds what that advice is. Going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. How many times have we heard well-intentioned people claim the guidance of God when it was all too plain that they were sorely mistaken? How would you know that? How would you know that? That this this just fucking drives me nuts. This kind of shit. How would you? How are you gonna know that that isn't the guidance of God? Isn't it all the guidance of God? Like, is it all? Yeah, we have self will, but also God's plan thing, right? Is always all knowing and all. Anyways, lacking both practice and humility, they had deluded themselves and were able to justly justify the most arrogant nonsense on the grounds that this was what God had told them. So there's like arbiters. Uh, this is this is cracking me up. So I, I, evidently there's arbiters that know when something is God's will or when it's not because it's obvious, even though it's mysterious. It is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they have received from God. Uh, leaving God out of this, I still very much think that it's a good idea to have somebody you check in with. I have female friends. Uh, that I I have grown to love and accept into my life in a way that that makes it easy for me to trust them with my information. So if I'm dating someone or if I'm in a relationship with someone, I can go to them and ask practical advice. Hey, am I handling this okay? And I have male friends I can do the same thing with. And when it comes to bigger things, financial or you know, hey, this is I'm you know I'm feeling a little down or this this that or other thing, and I'm not really sure how to how to go forward with it. I'm thinking about taking a new job. Whatever it is, I have people in my life I can talk to. Before I make any major decisions, I have people I trust that I can talk to. Surely then, a novice ought not lay himself open to the chance of making foolish, perhaps tragic tragic blunders in this fashion. 
While the comment or advance of others may be by no means infallible, it is likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while we are still inexperienced in establishing contact with a greater power than ourselves. So now you have to be experienced to understand God's will. Ugh, it, must, it sounds really exhausting, the whole thing. Not knowing if you're in God's will, knowing knowing that if you are, that you wouldn't understand it correctly. You know, it's all it's all just fail safes and cop outs, man. Fuck. Our next problem will be to discover the person in whom we are to confide. Here we ought to take much care, remembering that prudence is a virtue which carries a high rating. Perhaps we shall need to share with this person facts about ourselves which no others ought to know. We shall want to speak with someone who is experienced, who not only has stayed dry, but has been able to surmount other serious difficulties difficulties perhaps like our own this person may turn out to be one sponsor but not necessarily so if you have developed a high confidence in him and his temperament and problems are close to your own then such a choice will be good besides your sponsor already has the advantage of knowing something about your case one thing i will say about this that maybe they don't cover in the book i can't remember if you have committed a crime and you're not sure how that's really going to play out for you you haven't maybe been caught for it or Maybe, maybe you're just needing some kind of legal advice about something that you want to come clean about. Talk to a lawyer. It's cool. It's great. It's fantastic that you want to be, you know, fresh and clean and squeaky about things in your past that maybe are still active. But your sponsor is not legal counsel. Your sponsor is not beholden to uh, privileged information. Your sponsor is not a counselor. Your sponsor if they find out you're currently on the run or something along those lines, probably will will rat you out. They're they're a civilian, whether they've done time or not, or whatever the process you might mentally think is is uh whatever the the thing that people invent to decide what's ratting and what's not and what's snitching and what's not. If you do a crime and you tell a civilian about that crime and that civilian fucking says something, that's on you. Do not expect other people to not be privy to your information and give that information out to the authorities. You need to seek legal counsel. If you have a problem with your wife, if you have a problem with your kids and there's there's stuff that's happening that you don't know how to solve, do not seek legal counsel from your sponsor. You can tell them what you're going through and what feelings are associated with that and be open about, you know, hey, this makes me want to drink, all that fun shit. But if they come back with, hey, this is what I did, don't choose to use that as legal counsel and do not tell them about active crimes that you're still in trouble for never talk to a lawyer always talk to a lawyer don't talk to the police don't fucking just decide to go turn yourself in sometimes that's not always the best option sometimes that means you lose your job you lose your house you lose your car and you can't help anybody fix any of the shit that you broke Sometimes it's the only thing you can do, but again, don't have your sponsor be the person who decides that. Perhaps though your relation to him is such that you you would care to reveal only a part of your story. If this is the situation, by all means do so, for you ought to make a beginning as soon as you can. It may turn out, however, that you'll choose someone else for the more difficult and deeper revelations. This individual may be entirely outside of AA, for example, your clergyman or your doctor. For some of us, a complete stranger may prove the best bet. Do not fucking do that. Terrible advice. Do not just find a complete fucking stranger and say, hey, I have written down all the terrible shit that I've done in my life and uh, all the uh, the things that I have uh, deep um, resentments towards, and I'm going to tell you all about them. Do not fucking do that. The real test of the situation are your own willingness to confide and your full confidence in the one with whom you share your first accurate self-survey. 
That is true. I like that a lot. That's exactly what I was saying. Even when you've found the person, it frequently takes great resolution to approach him or her. No one ought to say the AA program requires no willpower. Here is one place you may require all you've got. Happily, though, the chances are that you will be in for a very pleasant surprise. When your mission is carefully explained and it is seen by the recipient of your confidence how helpful he can be, the conversation will start easily and will soon become eager. Before long, your listener may tell a story or two about himself, which will place you even more at ease. Provided you hold back nothing, your sense of relief will mount from minute to minute. The damned up emotions of years break out of their confinement and miraculously vanish as soon as they are exposed. As the, the pain subsides, a healing tranquility takes its place. And when humility and serenity are so combined, something else of great moment is apt to occur. Many, uh, many an AA, once agnostic or an atheist, tells us that it was during this step that he first actually felt the presence of God. They can fuck all the way off with this part and... Um, when they're done fucking off, they can fuck off some more. Seriously, I'm I'm so sick of this aspect of the program saying that you just need to you just need to make it through the steps and then you'll find God. Clearly, that shouldn't be how it works. I sh as an atheist should be able to find God fucking anywhere. I shouldn't have to get to the depth of becoming an alcoholic to the point of doing a program that forces me to become spiritual and then suddenly find my way to God. What the fuck? What kind of a program is that that God has set up? Like, well, man, we need more people believing in us, in me, so that I can uh, have my little army here. The only way for me to do that is to completely ruin and wreck and destroy their lives through alcoholism. And then they have to find their way on their own to this program, beg me a specific way. And when they do that, I may or may not actually help them with this program. And then when I do, then they'll know as an atheist that God's always been there. What a fucking absurd, just ridiculous thought process that goes into this kind of shit. And even those who had faith already often become conscious of God as they never knew, never were before. Uh, this feeling of being at one with God and man, this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt, brings us to a resting place where we may prepare ourselves for the following steps toward a full and meaningful sobriety. Of course, the God admitted part, that part, this, this, once you've the reason why the steps are ordered the way they are is because it does make sense that you go through the process in this way. It wouldn't make sense to skip any of this stuff and then go straight to like the amends part. You haven't worked through the parts that make it so that you're giving proper amends. You haven't worked through the stuff to make it so that you can do a daily inventory. You know, so it's important that this stuff occur the way that it does. And by the time you're done with this, this is usually when I have experienced people finding a peace in their sobriety. They're not maybe done struggling. But this is kind of the hump. Once you're past this, it's like, well, I guess I'm doing this thing. Obviously, that's not the case for everybody. Some people still struggle with this even after doing step five. Some people struggle with this for the rest of their lives. You know, that's just how how that goes. Uh, but for the most part, people get to this this step. And after completion, if they if they do everything honestly with themselves, then there's a piece that comes comes with it that makes it a lot easier to then face the rest of this. All right. Tradition five. Each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Again, I'm a fan of these traditions, man. They did a lot of smart things with these. Yeah. It. I. OK, one one part of this that I don't agree with. People will use this as a reason why you can't talk about drugs in AA meetings. And I will gladly remind them every single time of how much Bill Wilson talks about drugs, not only in the in the AA big book, not not only just in, in this fucking book, the 12 by 12, uh, in other literature, 
at one point, he was uh, on board with experimenting with psilocybin as a form of um, aiding people through their withdrawal process. He himself took uh, the belladonna treatment, which required hallucinogens and, uh, you know, had had his run in with barbiturates and and experienced morphine withdrawals. You know, so when people use Tradition 5, they use it in a way to be exclusive, to, to just exclude folks. That's really all it fucking comes down to. And they'll say things like, well, there's NA meetings. Now, if you're a drug addict and you go to an AA meeting, that doesn't mean you're not welcome there. It shouldn't. It might be difficult to find a relation with what you're saying. And I can understand people wanting to stick to a thing that they can relate to. But at the same time, you're still welcome there. If you're quitting and you're using the program to quit, you should be able to talk about how you quit. That's just all there fucking is to it. The primary purpose does not mean the only purpose. It does not mean the singularness of purpose. Now, fine, closed meetings, they can be a little bit stricter about this, but if you're in an open meeting and you say you smoked weed and you took drugs and somebody tries to, t- to shut you down about that, you can honestly, in my, in my humble opinion, just kindly tell them to fuck off. You sharing your story as it was is what's important. And if somebody doesn't like to hear you talk about drugs, that's on them. Shoemaker, stick to thy last. Whatever the fuck that means. Better do one thing supremely well than many badly. That is the central theme of this tradition. Around it, our society gathers in unity. The very life of our fellowship requires the preservation of this principle. Alcoholics Anonymous can be likened to a group of physicians who might find a cure for cancer and upon whose concerted work would depend the answer for sufferers of this disease. True, each physician in such a group, every doctor concerned would at times wish he could devote himself to his chosen field rather than work only with the group. But once these men had hit upon a cure, once it became apparent that only by their united effort could this be accomplished, then all of them would feel bound to devote themselves solely to the relief of cancer. In the radiance of such miraculous discovery, any doctor would set his other ambitions aside at whatever personal cost. Just as firmly bound by obligation are the members of Alcoholics Anonymous who have demonstrated that they can help problem drinkers as others seldom can. The unique ability of each AA to identify himself with and bring recovery to the newcomer in no way depends upon his learning, eloquence, or on any social individual skills. The only thing that matters is that he is an alcoholic who has found a key to sobriety. These legacies of suffering and of recovery are easily passed among alcoholics one to the other. This is our gift from God, and its bestowal upon others like us is the one aim that today animates AA all around the globe. I don't know. I, it, there's been studies, right, of people trying to cure a thing, and then they figure out, hey, we accidentally cured male pattern baldness, or, you know, we have a way of reversing some of the effects of male pattern baldness. And have quit the research that brought them there to uh, sell that product. Like, of course that's going to happen. You wouldn't just stop literally everything to just only work on the cure for cancer. The people that designed the mRNA delivery method were using it for for cancer vaccination, but then they also were testing it for AIDS. And if they cared either of those things, I can't imagine they'd be like, this is it. We're done. We are never working on anything else again. Such a weird idea. There's another reason for this singleness of purpose. It is the great paradox of AA that we know we can seldom keep the precious gift of sobriety unless we give it away. If a group of doctors possesses a cancer cure, they might be conscious stricken if they failed their mission through self-seeking. Yet such a failure wouldn't jeopardize their personal survival. For us, if we neglect those who are still sick, there is unremitting danger to our own lives and sanity. 
Under these compulsions of self-preservation, duty, and love, it is not strange that our society has concluded that it has but one high mission, to carry the AA message to those who don't know there's a way out. To me, that says we focus on recovery from alcoholism. We don't talk about our fucking fridge going out and how much it costs us to fix, right? I mean, you can talk about that stuff if you want, but the purpose of the meeting is for that to have a relation to recovery. Too many times people get super st stuck on like very specific small things and they don't, they, they kind of like, they don't, they don't go anywhere with it. There's no tie back to how it affected sobriety or, or how it, you know, how it was proof of, of growth in the program. And that's what this more or less is saying to me. We don't want it to suddenly become a, a, a loud jamboree uh, talking about making fucking cookies. Highlighting the wisdom of AA's single purpose, a member tells this story. Restless one day, I felt I had better do some 12-step work. Maybe I should take out some insurance against a slip, but first I'd have to find a drunk to work on. So I, I hopped the subway to Towns Hospital, where I asked Dr. Silkworth if he had a prospect. Nothing too promising, the little doc said. There's just one chap on the third floor who might be a possibility. But he's an awfully tough Irishman. I never saw a man so obstinate. He shouts that if his partners would treat him better and his wife would leave him alone, he'd soon solve his alcohol problem. He'd had a bad case of DTs, he's pretty foggy, and he's very suspicious of everybody. Doesn't sound too good, does it? But working with him may do something for you, so why don't you go have a go at it? Judgmental fuck. I, <laughs> seriously. Yeah, he's fucked up. Yeah, I don't know. If you want to talk to him, you can, but, you know, I don't expect anything. I was soon sitting beside a big hulk of a man. Decidedly unfriendly, he stared at me out of eyes which were slits in his red and swollen face. I had to agree with the doctor. He certainly didn't look good. But I told him my own story. I explained what a wonderful fellowship we had, how well we understood each other. I bore down hard on the hopelessness of the drunk's dilemma. I insisted that few drunks could ever get well on their own steam, but that in our groups we could do together what we could not do separately. He interrupted to scoff at this and asserted he'd find his wife, his partner, and his alcoholism by himself. Fixed, sorry. Sarcastically, he asked, how much does your scheme cost? I was thankful I could tell him nothing at all. His next question, what are you getting out of it? Of course, my answer was my own sobriety and a mighty happy life. Still dubious, he demanded, do you really mean the only reason you are here is to try and help me and to help yourself? Yes, I said, that's absolutely all there is to it. There's no angle. Then, hesitantly, I ventured to talk about the spiritual side of the program. What a freeze that drunk gave me. I'd no sooner got the word spiritual out of my mouth than he pounced. Oh, he said, now I get it. You're postulating for some damn religious sect or other. Where do you get that no angle stuff? I belong to a great church. That means everything to me. You've got some nerve in here talking religion. Thank heaven I came up with the right answer for that one. It was based four square on the single purpose of AA. You have faith, I said. Perhaps far deeper faith than mine. No doubt you're better taught in religious matters than I. So I can't tell you anything about religion. I don't even want to try. I'll bet too that you would give me a letter perfect definition of humility. What a fucking weird way to talk to somebody. But from what you've told me about yourself and your problems and how you propose to lick them, I think I know what's wrong. Just to point out, this person belongs to a church, probably prays to God, all that stuff. But God's like, we're going to continue to let you drink. You cannot get any recovery from alcohol here. You can only get it if this guy shows up and talks to you about alcoholism and you join their program. I'm not going to help you otherwise. Not gonna have your back. Those are my those are my terms. <sighs> okay, he said, give me the business. Well, said I, I think you're just a conceited Irishman who thinks he can run the whole show. 
This really rocked him, but as he calmed down, he began to listen while I tried to show him that humility was the main key to sobriety. Finally, he saw that I wasn't attempting to change his religious views, that I wanted him to find the grace in his own religion that would aid his recovery. From there on, we got along fine. Now, concludes the old-timer, suppose I'd been obliged to talk to this man on religious grounds. Suppose my answer had be had to be that AA needed a lot of money, that AA went in for education, hospitals, and rehabilitation. Suppose I'd suggested that I'd take a hand in his domestic business affairs. Where would he have wound up? No place, of course. Years later, this tough Irish customer liked to say, my sponsor told me one idea and that was sobriety. At the time, I couldn't have bought anything else. So, I mean, yeah, it's really weird that they could, that people will use this tradition as a way to stop others from talking about drugs in an alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Now, I get it if that's all they're talking about and they're not really talking about recovery, you know, but if the, if the way that this is being received is our purpose each member, our purpose is is to quit drinking. That's it. We're not trying to sell people anything. We're not trying to get uh we're not trying to get volunteers for a fucking toy drive. We're not trying to convert anybody, right? We're just trying to quit drinking. And we're trying to get other people to quit drinking who who are interested in doing so. That's it. The whole the whole reason. That's, that's all why here. That simplicity is important. Uh, and you know, if you're one of these people that has decided that they're going to use this as a reason for other people can't talk about drugs in an AA meeting, then maybe reevaluate that. Maybe that's a good idea. Because again, if they're if they're talking about recovery and they're and they're using the meeting and they're using the twelve steps in a, as a fashion of doing that, uh, excluding them from the process because you don't like the way that they talk about meth or fucking weed. You know, that's that's super fucking selfish. And it goes honestly to me that goes against the primary purpose. But that's that. That is uh, step five, tradition five. Yeah, I feel like that went well. Again, you can reach out to me at one atheist in AA at gmail.com if you have any any feedback. Uh, you can tell me your thoughts on these uh, steps and traditions as we're going through them. Give me some ideas of other things I could look into uh, as a way of kind of like uh, bringing this information to the table. Uh, or just tell me some of your story. I, I love talking with people who have listened to the podcast, even if it's them, you know, saying maybe they don't like an aspect of it. Uh, also, you can find me on Facebook at An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. You can send me a direct message through that. Um, you can like the page. I've been posting the videos as they come up, or I mean, uh, posting the episodes. And um, should we do interviews and stuff like that, that'll be where those will get posted as well. Uh, but for that, for now, that's it. I'll have an episode shortly after the New Year's extravaganza. Um, I was going to try to record early, but I think it might be best if I record after the actual New Year's event, um, just to kind of talk about how that went. Yeah, I enjoy everybody taking the time to uh, listen to my show, hopefully get something of value. Thank you for keeping me sober one more day.